Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest today is author Shell Horowitz. Today we will discuss green marketing based on his book, Guerrilla Marketing Goes Green. Self-described as an ethical and green marketing expert, book shepherd, writer, international speaker, consultant, community organizer, and frugalist, Shell's green efforts began with a one-toddler action against smokers at his parents' party when he was three years old. Shell has been involved in environmental and social change movements his whole life. In 1972, at age 15, he was involved in a community group that opposed a nuclear plant proposed very near New York City, a proposal that the utility company quickly withdrew. A veteran of the 1977 Seabrook occupation, his first book, written when he was only 22, was about why nuclear power makes no sense. Shell is also the author of the e-book Painless Green, 111 Tips to Help the Environment, Lower Your Carbon Footprint, Cut Your Budget, and Improve Your Quality of Life with no, eg- with no Negative Impact on Your Lifestyle. Shell, welcome. Thanks, Elena. It's great to be here. What do you mean when you say, or when we all say, green? Because I think that even though it seems like a very straightforward concept, I think that there's still a lot of confusion when people talk about concepts like green and organic. So would you just help us define what are we referring to when we well, say when green? when I use the term green, I'm referring to something that's environmentally sustainable. And what sustainable means is that it can be you can keep doing it over and over again and not deplete the resources and uh, not harm the earth. So uh, there are there are some people who would say that certain things are green that I would not say is green, uh, such as nuclear power. I think if you look closely at nuclear power, it's not at all sustainable. Um, but because in the actual act of smashing up uranium and you don't create carbon pollution, some people have seized on this as green, and I think that's a huge mistake, because you're dealing with something that is causing great safety risk, great health risk, uh, depletion of resources, and there is actually a carbon impact, although not at that part of the fuel cycle. So it's important to be very clear and to really look at the the long-term checks and balances, costs and benefits of anything before you can really label it green. Another example is the biomass fuel that has become very popular now. Trees are a renewable resource, yes, but they're also, when you burn them, they're very polluting, and they're not good for the ozone layer, they're not good for the carbon footprint, and they're definitely not good for the problem of CO2 emissions. So you've got to go deeper with this stuff and really kind of look. What's an example of something that is sustainable, that is green, that we might all be familiar with? Well, you mentioned organic. Organic is a great example because with organic farming practices, you are putting nutrients back into the soil. You are letting the soil nourish itself. And for thousands of years, people have used this technology to create sustainable farming practices. And part of organic is that every few years you give a particular plot of land a chance to rest for a season and and to regenerate. And just like we all need to sleep at night, the land does too. So that would be one example. Um, Using, for example, using less water or energy in your life to accomplish the same goal is another one. There are thousands. Okay, um, but that kind of gets us going in the direction so we, we know what we're talking about when we say 
going green. It means to try to be kinder to the environment and look at something that can be sustained over long periods of time without doing horrible damage. Is, am I understanding correctly? Yeah, yeah. So that if, if we're initiating something green right now, that our great-great-great-grandchildren should be able to do the same thing or perhaps improve upon it, and uh, that will continue to to help rather than harm the Earth and its residents, including us. A lot of people are under the impression that to be green is much more expensive than to be whatever the antithesis of green is, ungreen. Is that true? Well, the funny thing is, Elena, that it's not. And in fact, often you can save quite a bit of money by going green. I'll give you an example. Uh, the last time I needed a new printer, I found one that does duplexing, which means it prints on both sides of the page. That is a very green thing to do because you're using almost half as much paper. It's not quite half because some things are not an even number of pages. But I figure I probably cut my paper use by 40%. And since I made a commitment several years ago that I was only going to use recycled paper, which is more expensive, that was a significant savings to me. And it meant that the, the fifth carton of paper that I didn't print because I was saving the paper by printing on both sides paid for the printer. And that took less than a year. When you do things like brush your teeth with a very minimal amount of water instead of leaving the water run the whole time, you're saving money. And you're protecting a resource that I think is going to be as important in the coming decades as oil is today. When you switch to lower wattage light bulbs that provide the same quality of light, the light bulbs have come less, and at this point, your payback period is pretty quick, and after that, you're saving money. So no, green does not have to be expensive at all and, and sometimes can save the money. It takes a little bit of forward thinking, if I'm understanding the concept correctly, so that you don't do what you've been doing perhaps all along and you stop and think yeah. before you open the faucet or make a purchase. Mm -hmm. And also, you can take it on a deeper level. In the book, Royal Marketing Goes Green, I talk about this incredible man named Amory Lovins and how he looks at systems where, like, okay, you can spend this much amount of money to save 10% of your energy, but you could actually spend the same amount of money and save 70 or 80% by thinking very differently about the way you're trying to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. So that might involve, for example, a factory owner looking at the curvy, thin pipes that take material from one side of the factory to the other and yanking them out and putting in big straight ones, that because friction is so much less, you reduce power consumption, you reduce noise, you, you do amazing things with this one little innovation. And if you look at things that way, then big changes might cost even sometimes less than little changes. And that's very exciting to me because what that means is that we don't really have an energy crisis. We just need to figure out how to use it more effectively. Now, that brings me to a question that perhaps some of our listeners are asking themselves and which might seem silly to you, but why bother? A lot of people are living a comfortable lifestyle. They're fairly confident that their children, maybe even their grandchildren, are going to likewise live a comfortable lifestyle. Why should they bother making that extra effort, whether or not it it really is going to result in a savings. Maybe they're interested, maybe they're not. What is the incentive for people to be green? Well, you're going to have two sets of incentives there. One is the selfish one. 
that if you are using less energy, for example, to heat your home or to cool your home, you are going to free up cash to do more fun things. You can travel more, for example, or you can go out to eat more or whatever it is. Uh, then the, the sort of higher good principle is that we were given this planet of ours by the people who came before us and we have, I think, an obligation to maintain it for future generations, and we are at a point where there are decisions to be made about what is the future of the planet Earth. And if we choose to be short and look only for our own personal gain in this generation, it won't be too many more generations before there really isn't anything left that's habitable. We've seen the outcomes of the kind of climate catastrophe Katrina, the, the typhoon in Southeast Asia a few years ago, uh, the huge earthquake that just hit Haiti, these may be consequences of human action. And I think we want to preserve and protect the planet so that our grandchildren's grandchildren have a place to live. So it's a responsible thing to do, is, is that right? Mm-hmm. From a business perspective, how is being a green business and how is marketing from a green perspective different from or is it different from traditional marketing and business practices? Well, it is a little different, Melina, because you're looking at, first of all, you want to find the things that you're doing that make your business green and then you want to tell the world so that the world supports you because interestingly enough, the typical consumer really wants to do the right thing And if they have a choice between supporting a company that's just all about making profit for themselves and not about making the world better versus for purchasing something at about the same cost that is going to make a commitment to helping people in disadvantaged countries or helping the economy at home or uh, providing alternatives to the fossil fuel dependence that we have or all these sorts of things, they're going to gravitate toward doing the right thing. People want to use their dollars to support what's right. So by doing green marketing, you first of all identify the things you're doing that make you a good citizen of the world, and second, you tell the world about them, and you do it in ways that make people sit up and take notice. Uh, One of my favorite examples of this is Markel Paper. They make paper towels and toilet paper and napkins. and They actually went to recycled paper in 1950, but they didn't tell anybody. (laughs) You know, if you look at their packaging from the 60s and 70s, you can't find any mention of this on there. And I think that because they weren't telling people, it's part of why they went bankrupt in 2006, and now they've come back and they've really focused their packaging on saving a million trees and using paper that's made from paper rather than trees. And it's not surprising to me that they went from the economic bottom, bankruptcy, to being the category leader. They're now selling more recycled paper than anybody else in in that category. And um, it's because I think they started to tell their story. They they started to make it a higher good. Saving a million trees is a much more important thing in the consumer's mind than buying a roll of toilet paper. What about the effect that the recession is having on the market, the incredible number of jobs that have been lost to overseas or to shrinkage, to fear because people are waiting to see what happens, where everything lands. 
and the fact that some businesses are manufacturing outside the country and are not engaging in, in green practices. How do you deal with that if your competitors, if the other companies that you're doing business with even, are not engaged in business practices? Um, I talked to a CEO of a small company recently, and I asked about sustainable practices, including maintaining jobs in the United States. And her answer was, I have no choice. If I don't outsource and if I don't focus on just staying afloat, never mind green practices, I cannot maintain my business. I will go under. How do you deal with that? Well, it's definitely a challenge, and there are big pressures to outsource. And I think we need to find ways of showing that keeping jobs in the community uh, is is something that is of value to us, number one, but also that can be economically viable. And this might be, I mean, it will look okay, particularly uh, since your audience tends to be a Hispanic audience. Many Hispanic communities have been hit particularly hard by job loss. And uh, the people who would have normally been able to find sort of survival-level jobs are finding a very hard time finding them. And then you look at a company like Grayston Bakery, which supplies brownies and stuff for Ben & Jerry's ice cream, among other customers. And they are located in Yonkers, New York, a depressed area just outside of New York City. And they've basically made a commitment to hire people who would normally be considered unemployable. Some of these might be ex-prisoners or ex-drug addicts or people who've never had a real job. And they have a process of bringing these people up and training them and making them productive and giving them employment. And that has a real effect on the economy of Yonkers and the surrounding communities. And... You know, by doing that and then by telling the story, then they attract corporate partners like Ben and Jerry's who can buy a lot of their product. And sometimes you have to look at what are the short-sighted economies versus the, the larger picture. If you outsource your tech support to Bombay and then you get people who can't understand the American customer and who provide a big exercise in frustration and they're very sympathetic but they can't actually get anything done in terms of solving your problem, have you really outsourced the solution? No, you've you've just spread the problem and created bad will that comes back to bite you the next time that customer goes out to buy a similar product. They'll say, well, I got such terrible support from these people because they they didn't understand me and they put me um, on the phone with somebody a half a world away who has no clue uh, we've all had that experience. <laughs> you know, it's uh, ultimately you can come back with a different story and say, I chose to keep my jobs in our communities right here in the United States. I've chosen to provide my customers with people who can actually be empowered to fix things when there's a problem. You can, it all depends on how you tell the story. How do you compete in that market, though, Shell, where because of the recession making things more difficult, it's harder for businesses, big and small, to really embrace those practices because they're struggling just to stay afloat. What they are approach? Just to, yeah, go ahead. No, what what approach? What can you do to stay afloat in that market and still embrace those green marketing ideas that you espouse? Well, I think this is a situation where you really look at what can you be doing 
to lower your carbon footprint and your cost at the same time? What can you be doing to give back to the community while still maintaining a solid financial picture? And of course, this is going to be different for every business. But for most businesses, there will be ways. You can look at some of the streamlining of, of processes that need to happen. You can look at providing materials closer to where they'll actually be used so that you cut out all the expenses of shipping them across the country or across the world. You know, it's not cheap to ship a boatload of stuff from China to the United States and then from whatever port of entry into wherever it's going. So looking at kind of the whole life cycle of costs and benefits, you, there's almost always ways to make it cost competitive if you're looking at the whole picture. If you're only looking at, okay, I can produce this widget in China for 36 cents in the United States, it's going to cost me $2.00. That makes China look like a good decision. But then if on top of that 36 cents, it's going to cost you a dollar to ship it, and it's going to cost you 50 cents to deal with the, the language problem, and it's going to cost you another 50 cents to deal with the problems of technical support. And lo and behold, when you look at the whole thing, it may not be so cost competitive after all to ship that job overseas. Plus, you get the benefit of community goodwill by keeping it here. And you begin to engage the neighborhood, the community, as a partner in your business, as you're a partner in their community. And very exciting things can happen from these kinds of partnerships, and I do talk about that in Guerrilla Marketing Goes Green to some degree. And <clears throat> when all is said and done, when you look at these big pictures, you may find that rather than outsource the jobs, you should perhaps be advocating for effective health reform because most companies around the world are not paying the cost of employee health that's picked up by the government, and therefore they can come in with lower prices than an American company can that has to pay the health care because our government hasn't seen fit to initiate what almost every other government in the world has, which is that health care is a, is a, is a government-funded mandate. So that's one thing that if our labor costs are, are artificially higher because we don't have health care, then... Mm -hmm. Proper healthcare reform may make more sense than outsourcing. Let's go back to something that you said earlier and maybe piggyback on the, for, for the next question. You talked about the apparent costs of making purchases abroad, but that when you looked a little bit closer at what that really meant, that they weren't as inexpensive as it might appear. And certainly we've seen recently in the headlines the whole issue of Chinese imports and how many people have been poisoned. Uh, here in Florida, we have a problem with homes that have been built with Chinese drywall that have made many, many people sick uh, to the point that, for example, the tax collector is reducing the value of homes built with Chinese drywall by 70%. Mm -hmm. And... and of course, sure shows the short-sightedness of the looking only at the single production cost and not at all the other factors. It doesn't factor in that these homeowners are going to sue for loss of value in their homes or for the health problems they're experiencing. It doesn't factor in the loss of a customer that could have been a lifetime customer because the stuff is crap and they'll never come back again. Uh, and, you know, it, it's the, we really have to look systemically at all of these things. And if companies do look systemically, they'll often find that the economy makes more sense to build right here at home. Now, it takes a while sometimes for these 
not apparent expenses to become obvious, such as with the Chinese drywall and the many other products that have had problems coming from China, such as the recent problems with uh, automobile recalls from Toyota. Are people willing to look closely at these decisions, do you find, Shell, and look at the long term? Because, of course, we know that Toyota is one of the most successful sellers of automobiles in the country. Well, I think they're going to have to, uh, because if they don't, it's going to come back to bite them. You know, 50 years ago, there was no pollution control regulation at all. That came about in the 70s, really. And be considered that it was a company's right to pollute and that the, the costs that were outsourced onto the public at large, and this is again something that happened particularly uh, badly in communities of color, that um, the people who lived there were essentially asked to bear the costs of this pollution in the form of health problems and in the form of bad air to breathe and all the rest of it and, and polluted water. And uh, now... The laws have changed, and if you pollute, even if you polluted 50 years ago, you can be held responsible for that. Similarly, if you bring in poisonous drywall and build houses with it, you're going to bear some responsibility. So even if you go in kicking and screaming, as a manufacturer or as a retailer of, this, of any kind of product, you must be aware of the effects of that product, and you must be aware of the full life cycle costs, including disposal when it's done or you're going to be in for some very unpleasant surprises that will cost you billions of dollars in some cases. Are these folks really being held accountable? Do we have evidence that these companies that engage in these practices that have negative consequences for so many other folks, are they really being held accountable? Are there negative long-term effects for them? The answer is sometimes, but... You don't know when it's going to hit. Uh, for example, in the book, in Guerrilla Marketing Goes Green, I talk about Nestle and about a bottled water ad that they had in Canada that got them into court because the ad made claims that were demonstrably not true. And it was very easy for environmental watchdogs who, by the way, bottled water is a product that has far more environmental consequences, negative environmental consequences than most people think. So by going too far with their claims, Nestle gave a forum, a platform, for the environmental activists to go in and haul them into court on the basis of the false claim. So I, I think you're going to see more and more examples like that. I, does the regulatory system catch every offender? No, certainly not. Um, there is, I guess, always the risk that people will say, to me, but... Uh, you know, ultimately, that shouldn't be why you do it. You should do it because it's the right thing and the profitable thing to do the right thing. But also, the, the stick as well as the carrot, that some companies will face some severe challenges in court and some very, very expensive monetary damages. Okay, so if we assume, and let's assume for the moment, that green is the right way and that we want to follow the right way because we are good citizens of the world and good corporate citizens, then how do we go about doing that? Tell us a little bit more about that, if you would, Shell, and this new marketing mindset that you describe in the book. Okay. Well, for starters, 
Marketing Green has a lot of advantages to the companies that are doing it. You are able to much more easily win the hearts and minds of consumers and take them from passive consumers to active fans and even ambassadors for you, people who will go out and say, you've just got to try this thing from such and such company. And part of the reason you want to try it is because they're doing right by the community and right by the world. Um, it involves, again, telling that story, being able to put out very clear non-misunderstandable green messages that are based in fact about what you're doing and why. Um, it involves, here's a great example, you know, okay, the hotel industry, it was only 10, 15 years ago that those little signs started appearing saying, save water and save resources and uh, uh, keep your towel on the rack if you don't need it to be washed tonight. Um, that was presented as an environmental initiative and because it was presented as an environmental initiative, it went in very smoothly with basically zero customer resistance, especially since any time you wanted a towel washed, all you had to do was drop it on the floor of the bathroom, and then the housekeeping would come and take it away and give you a fresh one. What it really was was a cost-cutting maneuver. I mean, here was, again, an example where, where doing the green thing saved enormous amounts of money for the hotel industry as a whole. But they positioned it not as help us save a few bucks so that we can make more profit, even though that didn't impact what was going on, but save gallons and gallons of water and, and soaps and let the towels last longer and, and be right with the environment just by keeping your towel on the rack. You know, so again, there was, a, there was no lifestyle shift really needed. It was not a big deal for people to put their towel back up on the towel rack. <laughs> and uh, uh, how much water and money have been saved from that, I couldn't even begin to calculate. So it's a, a way of focusing on the environmental benefits that at the same time have a business benefit. Exactly. You know, I, I am not at all convinced that Walmart's sustainability uh, initiatives, which they have done plenty, and they have done some very interesting and good things in sustainability, have anything to do with anything other than a desire to cut costs. But um, even if they're doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, they're doing the right thing. What sorts of things should you look at? That's a really interesting statement that you just made. Even if they're doing it for the wrong reasons, as long as they're doing the right thing, then it's okay. What sorts of things should you be looking for as a consumer and as a business person, maybe even a decision maker in your company, to make a decision about who to do business with, who to make purchases from when you want to keep these green concepts in mind? Should you be looking at business practices? Should you be looking at who's on the board of directors? Absolutely. You're giving you should be looking at to? all of these. And again, uh, you know, I just referred to Walmart. And one of the reasons they have not convinced me of their sincerity is because looking at a corporate-wide level, they have a number of very unsustainable practices such as the demand that their suppliers reduce the prices like 10% every year. That forces people to go to places like China to get the work done. Um, you know, that uh, the impact that Walmart has on a community where they choose to locate where sometimes the community doesn't want them. The impact to that community when Walmart closes a store and leaves it vacant. All of these kinds of things are why... I phrased that other statement the way I did, that I felt that Walmart was doing, in terms of environmental sustainability, the right thing, 
in some cases, but for not necessarily the right reasons. So I, as the consumer, I look for companies that are more holistic in their commitment to do good. Companies that, that support the local economies in which they're based, and those may be economies here at home, or, for example, uh, I have a friend who runs Beans Beans, a coffee roaster. From day one, everything that they have bought has been 100% organic and also 100% fair trade. And a big chunk of their profits go back into development work in those villages where the coffee is grown and in ways that leave the people who live in those villages in charge of that development. It's not an initiative from big corporate daddy in the United States. It's, it says, here's the money we're going to give you to do this, this, and this. It's like, okay, you as a community, what do you need? You need a well, you need a school. That's up for you to determine, and we'll help it make a reality by reinvesting some of the money that we've gotten working with you. I think that's a very exciting model, and I think certainly when I buy coffee, I look to support companies like that that have a commitment to fair trade practices, to organic um, and, and to making the world better. An author, and I can't remember his name or the name of the book, but somebody that I recently heard about, and I think this has been, the word has been spreading recently, talked about the big banking industry, because of course that has been in the news so much lately, and how they not only were taking advantage of taxpayers because of all this help they had been getting, but that in addition to that they were mistreating their customers. And he said, if you don't think that that's right, if you disagree with all of these behaviors and the whole policy behind it, you have the power, you the audience, to do something about it. Fire your bank. If your bank is a national bank, and he, of course, named some of them, he says, fire your bank and go hire a local bank that is doing the right thing mm-hmm. and that is engaging in the right practice. Can you do something like that in this sure. green Sure, and Ariana Huffington has been a, a part of this campaign also with the Huffington Post. For me, it's a non-issue because I've been banking locally my whole life. I always find a small local bank, and I shift banks when they get bought out by big corporate conglomerates, as has happened several times. Um, and uh, uh, So I've made personal choices that I want to support my community banks, and we can do this with every sector in our lives. We can buy locally grown food. You know, we, um, I, I'm a member of a community-supported agriculture farm, Every week during the late spring and summer and into the fall, I go and get my vegetables that are grown where I can see them growing. And by doing that, not only am I putting money back into the local economy, I'm getting much fresher food, and I'm taking a stand against the corporate agribusiness industrial farming system that really, from my point of view, makes very, very little sense, and putting that commitment to feed my family as much as possible from local organic sources right here in western Massachusetts. What can you do when the only thing that's available in your community is one of those behemoths like the ones that you were talking about earlier to address this issue? What is, if there, if you can narrow it down to one thing, what would you say is the single most important thing that consumers can focus on, consumers as individuals or as businesses, when they're making decisions about who to do business with and whose business to support? Because when you make purchases, you are in fact supporting a business model. Of course. Well, interestingly enough, 
we no longer have a monopoly anywhere in the world that there's an internet connection. Um, yeah, it, it, the, the sort of company store model where there's only one place to do business is only relevant if you can't go online and order from someplace else. And these days we can. So consumers need to recognize that they are coming from a position of strength, that if they choose to do business with the one behemoth that is left in their town after all the local stores were driven out, that it is a choice and that they can organize and they can demand that that retailer provide more locally grown products, for example, or that that retailer provide some some education for the town, maybe add to the school budget or whatever it is. But people as organized forces are much more effective than the single individual writing a letter to the manager of the store. From the marketing perspective and the guerrilla marketing perspective, Shell, what does that mean in terms of marketing practices and how you embrace the whole green concept? Well, there are two parts to that. One is as consumers and one is as producers or sellers. So as consumers, we have a lot of power. Uh, just as an example, in, in the book, Guerrilla Marketing Goes Green, I do talk about the case of Save the Mountain, which was a community organization that I started because a local developer announced that the mountain right next to another mountain that has a state park that always wins the best place to take out of town visitors award in the local newspaper reader poll uh, was the perfect place to put a large development of trophy homes. And basically all the experts said, oh, this is terrible, but there's nothing we can do. And I got that's when I got mad. And I said, of course there's something we can do. And we formed this group called Save the Mountain, and we had 70 people jam themselves into my not enormous dining room into for the first meeting. And we organized committees, and we did this and we did that. And in 13 months flat, we brought that product to us, that project to a standstill, and the land was protected forever. So this is what the citizens can really do. From a business point of view, you want to be seen as not only responsive to the community, but actually anticipating the community's needs and going out to meet them. And this is something I do talk about in the book, about how you as a sensitive and uh, aware business can really be in the forefront, can provide alternatives to, that people didn't even know they needed. And this can be very profitable. What do you do when faced with an audience of businesses and consumers who have no knowledge, no deep knowledge or understanding of these concepts and who perhaps for cultural reasons, maybe because they've not embraced this, because it's not part of their culture, uh, maybe they've come from another country where these practices are not well respected or maybe not known, whatever the reasons or because they don't think it's valid, whatever the reasons. How do you deal with that situation where you have an audience that is not particularly oriented to green practices? And just as an example, we in the United States have an emerging or several emerging markets that are driving our growth, and many of those folks are immigrants from other places that may not have the same views on sustainable on a sustainable future that you've described. How do you as a marketer and as a business person deal with that? That's a fascinating question. And number one, I I think that in many cultures there is actually a value. I I traveled in Guatemala a couple of years ago. Guatemala is an area where you see a lot of pollution and you see a lot of 
really violation of the land, but you also see this movement towards stewardship at even very high levels. I actually attended a reception with the president of Guatemala where he talked about the environmental commitment that his government has made. Um, and we stayed, as it happens, with the head of the park system in Guatemala. Very committed people to making changes there. And when you go out into the the countryside and you ride the buses and you ride the boats and you talk to the people who are sitting next to you, you discover that this green consciousness goes actually pretty deep. What uh, They may feel disempowered. They may not have a sense of how to get there. But they understand the issues on a gut level. They're seeing the, the children get sick uh, next to the polluted river. They're, you know, This sort of thing is part of their daily life. It impacts them much more so than it does to a lot of us up here in Norteño country. And um, I, I think one of the ways you can reach people who maybe don't have that consciousness, and I'm very, very heartened, by the way, in the last few years, were how this undercurrent that had been bubbling out of sight for 30 or 50 years uh, and as a fringe movement, all of a sudden environmental consciousness is everywhere. You can't open a newspaper or, or listen to a newscast without hearing about climate change anymore, and I think this is very good. That's really become a mainstream concept. But one area where you can reach people is through their children. Often children are the leaders and saying, hey, dad, mom, what are we doing here? You know, uh, Why are we throwing this out? It's perfectly good. We can reuse it. Why are we putting this in the landfill when it can be recycled or composted? Um, why are we buying bottled water when our tap water is fit to drink? You know, All of these kinds of questions begin dialogues in a house and begin changing the, the way people think. Somebody said to me one time, when I was visiting a African country and I asked a similar question. I said, you know, why are the attitudes different? Why are the behaviors different? Aren't some of these people concerned about this is their future land? Um, and in this case, it had to do with animal conservation because, of course, as you may have heard, they're running out of space for the animals and so the animals are at risk. And the answer that, that they gave me was a very profound answer. It really made me think to this day, which is that many of these people are struggling for survival, literally. And so these are luxuries that they can't afford. They can't think about tomorrow when they're so focused on surviving today. Well, you can kind of dovetail that, though. Right? Let's look at... Uh, <laughs> we're going kind of deeper than I, than I usually do with some of this stuff. But look, look at the issue of seeds, okay? Agricultural seeds. It is very poor practice, and every farmer understands this, to use all your seeds and not save any for the next round. You need to put some aside so that you have something to plant the next time. You need to make that sustainable. And you need to understand that struggling for survival, yes, it is a struggle, but that, that cutting off the, the resources you need to make that happen is not ultimately a good model. And that a much better model is to look at how you can nurture those plants and get more yield out of them and um, save enough that you have for the next harvest and save for the winter and all of these things that for thousands of years people have known how to do. We need to get better at that. We need to look at the efficiencies of these systems and how we can do more with less so that that remaining portion go to people who maybe don't have as much as we do. I'm hearing education there. 
how do you go about doing that from going back to the topic at hand, the marketing perspective? One of the things that you talk about in the book, um, chapter 15 I'm thinking about right now, are some of the practical tools to market effectively. Would you share a little bit of an overview on that, Shell? Yeah, and I think marketing, good marketing does involve education. Uh, and it, it involves everything from sending out press releases and using social media, and in the book I talk very specifically about how to do those things, on up to, for example, forming partnerships and alliances with people who are already reaching the audience you'd like to get to. And uh, the education component can be very powerful and very simple. I'm reminded of a story from not my book, but the book Influencers, about a village in Africa that got rid of a horrible parasite just by training people to deal with water slightly differently. And, and within a very short time, they eliminated this scourge that had really been causing unbelievable misery. On a uh, less life-threatening level, <laughs> you know, for me as a marketer in the green universe, I went and formed a partnership with Green America, greenamericatoday.org, where I agreed that my co-author and I would donate a certain portion of money from the book launch and in return, they would expose us to their highly targeted list of 94,000 people who are very, very interested in green business. That's who they support. So I was able to get in front of those people by leveraging a couple of phone calls and not having to spend any money to do it, not having to spend really very much time to do it. And, you know, the... the, the impact of that was that their 94,000 people got a big announcement in their email boxes about this book. Uh, this whole book, everything I've done with this book has involved partnerships like that. I think if you think about who is going to benefit by helping you, <laughs> that's, that's a question you can ask. And also to flip it around, and who can I benefit that would then be in a position to help me as not tit for tat, but as, as a way of, of just sort of closing the karmic wheel, so to speak. Um, this is much more effective than what expensive media outlet can I throw lots of money into advertising on so that people um, hear about my product but hear about it in a way that doesn't resonate with them. Um, too much of traditional marketing has gone into things that actually alienate the people being marketed to. And I, I'm not a believer in that. I think it's much better to make friends and make partners than it is to push people away and, and say, we're going to buy our, your stuff in spite of you and not because of you. That was a really interesting statement that you made. And if I'm understanding correctly, Shell, what you're saying is that not only is green sustainability a different way to look at your life and business, but that it also means reaching out to those audiences in a different way. Would you tell us how that is different? Yeah, that you, again, you come in as an ally and not as an aggressor. It's a, a, a really different mindset. It's, it's pull marketing instead of push marketing. And just to give you an example, okay, the yellow pages is a pull marketing medium. When somebody wants something, they open the yellow pages or an online directory and they look for the, the type of thing they're looking for. And then from that, they are self-selecting as opposed to being bombarded with push messages saying, come buy me, buy me, buy me. Um, and I, I believe very much in the power of pull marketing. So where the customer essentially directs the flow of the marketing energy toward you instead of you directing it toward them. 
And this is, is really a, a different way of, of thinking about marketing. And what it means is that they come to you as eager and desirous to do business with you because they've come across, for example, articles you've written, or they've listened to a podcast like this, or they've read a book, or they've heard you speak, and they already want to do business with you. And if you don't mess it up, you get the sale. This is a very, very, very different concept. How does that relate to the changes in traditional media that we're seeing today so that many people, for example, are using social media and podcasting and video casting are these good media for these strategies that you're describing? Very much so. In, in fact, I've been using social media in my own business since 1995, and most of my business comes one way or another through social media. And I, I do talk in Guerrilla Marketing Goes Green quite a bit about how to use social media, particularly Twitter and Facebook, but also blogs. And... Uh, email discussion groups, which is how I got my start in social media. And again, you're creating a, an attitude of expertise. You're creating an attitude of being helpful. And when someone who is participating in these communities needs what you have to offer, you'll be top of mind. They won't go out searching for who is going to be the best provider. They already know. Uh, here's an example from my own life. Uh, several years ago, I had a kidney stone, horrible pain, really felt terrible. And I needed information, and I needed it fast. I'm on a list of independent publishers, um, a um, discussion list. And I knew that there was somebody in that community who was always very cogent about book marketing, but also about kidney stone issues, who had written a book on kidney stones. And I went, and in three minutes flat, I tracked her down and ordered her book. I didn't go researching who were the providers of information about kidney stones. I had been predisposed to make that decision because of the poll marketing she had done over a period of three or four years. That makes me think of something that a previous guest talked about, and that was Janet Fouts. One of the things that she talked about, about social media, which is her area of expertise, was that this was really something that you developed over time, that if you were involved in social media, that you really became engaged in a conversation and got to know other people in those forums. Is that what you're seeing when it comes to green, environmental, sustainable strategies and social media? Very much so. Yeah, it's a long-term approach. It's not a quick fix. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's something you do over time and with commitment, and it pays enormous dividends. If you're willing to invest that time and build your expertise and build your mailing list and build your following, oh my goodness, you know, you can really do amazing things. What three suggestions, Shell, would you share with our listeners who are mostly middle to senior level executives, business people who are looking to find ways to better reach these green audiences and do more effective marketing, what three suggestions would you share with them that they can take back to their businesses and employ, if you will, in their practices? Well, first of all, I think you want to kind of do an informal audit of your own business practices at every level to look for where could you be more green and where could you do it without spending a lot of money. Um, where can you both save money and save carbon footprint? Uh, you know, that's one thing. Uh, the second would be to understand how to tell your story for maximum effectiveness so that it's not really a story about you, but a story about helping the earth. 
And of course, in the book, The Will of Marketing Goes Green, I, I give very specific information on how to do that. And the third is to think about in whose advantage it is to help you succeed and to form those kinds of partnerships that I talked about earlier. And uh, speaking of partnerships, by the way, one of the other partnerships I did with Guerrilla Marketing Goes Green is I arranged with various uh, people who publish easings and blogs and, and newsletters to provide $2,600 worth of stuff that you get if you order the book. Uh, in addition to the book, for the 2195 you get all of these really good things on how to live more green, how to market more effectively. And the way to do that is to put your receipt number in at GorillaMarketingGoesGreen.com and click on the bonus page. I should mention that Gorilla is spelled G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A. So two R's, two L's. Gorilla Marketing Goes Green. It, it's really so much more effective to do this kind of marketing than it is to do the old-style marketing. It, that I really wonder why it's you see so many businesses struggling with the old methods and not understanding why they're not working. To just rehash what you said in terms of the suggestions that you were, were making for our audience was to assess internally what they might be able to change so that they saved more money and were greener in their own business and in their own lives to find a way to tell their story from a green perspective and to identify potential partners that they could work with as you did in your example with the Guerrilla Marketing Goes Green book and the bonus savings that people who purchase the book can get. Exactly. Thank you, Shell, for joining us from Hadley, Massachusetts. Well, thank you, Elena. It's been wonderful to be here. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Shell Horowitz, who discussed green marketing based on his book, Guerrilla Marketing Goes Green, Winning Strategies to Improve Your Profits and Your Planet. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicMPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicMPR.com. That's editor at HispanicMPR.com. MPR.com.